Hey everybody, welcome to 2023. I want to welcome you to the Before You Quit podcast where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard and demand does it get hard sometimes. That is why we do what we do on these podcast episodes. My name is Mitch Schultz and I'm the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. Also your host for your fine host for these podcast episodes. Hey, have you ever wondered how this generation is doing in defending their faith? I remember back in my early years in ministry doing a number of training programs such as Evangelism Explosion, even a course that was taught in the, in the college where I attended, uh, which uh, that along with several, several other tools provided me with a wonderful equipping for sharing the gospel to others. Uh, yet, and I think you would acknowledge this, in, in 40 years, so much has changed. We have changed, the church has changed, college institutions have changed, their priorities have changed, and, and probably most notable, uh, the world around us has changed. It's, it's not as easy, and dare I say common, to share our faith, particularly in a world that where more and more the world is resisting that gospel message. Um, how does this generation address moral issues, for example, like homosexuality, redefining of marriage, uh, how, how do we address biblically the questions about the historicity of Adam or evolution, which is becoming more and more uh, the case? Uh, how, how is this generation doing and giving clear, solid responses to those hard parts of the Bible like genocide and slavery? Well, thankfully, because I would not be fully equipped to answer those questions, someone has put a lot of thought into this and a lot of work and has placed those thoughts and that work into a wonderful book called The Young Christian Survival Guide. I have the privilege today to sit down with that author about his book. His name is Don Williams. He is a professor emeritus of Tacoa Falls College. He's a refers to himself, I love this, as a border dweller. He stays permanently camped out on the borders between serious scholarship and pastoral ministry, theology, and literature. Uh, he's got a tremendous passion for anything C.S. Lewis. He's an ordained ministry and the, a minister in the Evangelical Free Church of America. Uh, he spent many years in pastoral ministry, many summer training local pastors in Uganda, Kenya, India for church planting international. He's the author of 13 books, and the one that we are interested in today is this one, the Young Survival's Guide, uh, the Christian Survival Guide. So without any more babbling on my end, let's go ahead and jump into that interview now. All right, I have the privilege this morning to talk to someone I've only recently uh, gotten to know, Dr. Donald Williams. Don, good to have you on the Before You Quit podcast this morning. Good to be here. Awesome. It took a while for us to get the audio to work, so it looks like we're ready to roar here. Um, yeah, so we're having an interesting discussion. I, it seems like recently I've been doing a, a number of interviews around books that people have written, and uh, you wrote a book entitled uh, uh, Common Questions That Young Christians Ask About God, the Bible, and the Christian Faith. So we're going to have a fun time discussing that. But before that, let's uh, get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what, what you did and what you do now. And, um, and then secondly, I love to ask people what they're most passionate about, what drives you. So your turn. Tag your well, for 32 years, I was the medieval and renaissance guy in the English department at Tacoa Falls College, but uh, I also taught our apologetics course. I taught some theology 
uh, the small Christian college is the last refuge of the Renaissance man or the Renaissance man wannabe. So uh, I'm ordained in the uh, Evangelical Free Church of America. I've had quite a few years of pastoral experience. But uh, the last uh, 30 years or so, I made my living expounding a different set of texts than scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shakespeare and Milton and Beowulf and guys like that. Uh, because that's just the way uh, providence worked out. But I continued through all that time uh, <clears throat> working uh, in the ministry, preaching, and uh, for about 10 years, uh, I was a church planner in Tacoa mm-hmm. mm. uh, on the side while I was teaching. And uh, I've, uh, for the, about the last 15 years or so, I've uh, been a uh, teacher for Church Planning International, which is a small mission that supports church planning efforts, indigenous church planning efforts in third world countries. Oh, my goodness. Wonderful. I spent spent, uh, quite a few summers in Kenya, in Uganda, in India, Mm. uh, training local pastors. Uh, these, These are countries where there's tremendous spiritual hunger. The church is growing faster than they can train leaders. And so uh, I'll go to an African village and we'll gather all the pastors from that area. And I'll, from morning to night, I spend time with them, teaching them things like methods of Bible study, basic hermeneutics and sermon preparation, because, you know, th- these guys, these are guys who have a, a high school education at best. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe half of a high school education. I mean, they may be the preacher out in the remote villages because they're the only member that can actually read the Bible. Well, listen, I, I, I feel another podcast coming here. And so, yeah, so what, how would you answer the question? What, what drives you? What are you most passionate about? And let's, uh, we'll discuss your book after that. Well, um, I, I suppose I should give the theologically correct answer. <laughs> Uh, Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God. Mm, love and, it. Uh, the, the older I get, the closer I get to making that a reality as far as my motivations are concerned. I remember <clears throat> a moment when I was in high school. I was in a church. We had a really good expositor as our pastor. And uh, I remember sitting there with my Bible open, my King James Bible open on my lap in the middle of the sermon. And just suddenly, I said, Lord, it would be really neat if someday you would let me do for others what this man is doing for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the first inkling. I wasn't expecting to pray that prayer. It just mm-hmm. came from somewhere. And that was the first inkling that I was called into the ministry. And oh, so wonderful. I've been uh, preaching, teaching, and writing ever since. Mm-hmm. Different combinations as Providence had it play out. Since retiring, I'm still uh, working on the writing. Uh, There's a book we're going to talk about. Uh, Right now, I am finishing up my next book, which will be number 14. It'll be out in uh, the new year, which is a book about C.S. Lewis as an apologetics role model for Mm -hmm. us. Yeah. A lot of books about Lewis as an apologist, most of them focus on the validity of his arguments. Mm -hmm. I'm going to deal with that. But I'm going to focus on a couple of things that the other books haven't done so much. And that, that is, number one, 
what are the adjustments we have to make? Because that's, that stuff was 80 years ago uh -huh. in the 1940s. It's it's hard to get your head around the fact that the 1940s was 80 years ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And so the world has changed a lot. Postmodernism was never heard of when Lewis was writing. So how do we uh, how do we take the good stuff he gave us and adjust it so that it will be effective in today's apologetic environment? You know, I I, I have a question later that I think I'd be good to circle back on this. Okay, I, I think it's going to be important. It, uh, hopefully, we'll have time for that. And All right, so yeah, let's. The other thing I'm going to focus yeah. on that books on Lewis as an apologist have not done so much is practically how does lewis function as a role model for us as we're doing that, as we're learning the arguments from him as we're thinking about how do we need to nuance it and adjust it uh so that we're addressing the questions people are asking today but then as a practical role model what can lewis yeah. teach us yeah. about how to do apologetics yeah in general okay well, that's, that's that's going to be the next book yeah that's wonderful that's the third podcast yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. So your book that we're going to talk about, Young Christian's Survival Guide, uh, Common Questions About uh, God, the Bible, and Christian Faith. Uh, so just real real brief, what, what led you to write this book? What were you observing around you? What were you concerned uh, uh, that led you to, to sit down and say, hey, I've got to write this book? Well, uh, the simple answer is I was assigned to write it. For once, the publisher actually came looking for me. Okay, and, okay. And said, you arrive uh, somewhere when you're approached by a publisher to write. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there was look. I want to do this. I want this apologetics book that's aimed at uh, a high school audience. Mm -hmm. I, I tried really hard to bring it down to a high school audience, and I think as a result, I succeeded in hitting for about the college sophomore level. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, so what what were they what were they concerned about then that they approached you and asked you to write this book? Well, actually, uh, it wasn't that specific. It was just the basic idea of uh, the young Christian survival guide. Let's help these kids be in a position where they can navigate the shoals that are out there for mm -hmm. young Christians today. I had already been thinking about uh, the need for something like this because of experiences I had teaching apologetics at Tacoa Falls College. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Noticing, noticing the kinds of questions my students were not well prepared to deal with. One of the things we did in that apologetics course is we would have debates. So one, one guy would be assigned to play the Christian, another guy would be assigned to play the non-Christian on a given topic. And uh, they would debate. They would prepare the debate. They would give it. The class would ask questions. I would wrap it up. And I noticed, for example, in the debate over the inerrancy of Scripture, mm -hmm. you know, the, guy, the Christian would come in, and he would have all this well-prepared evidence about the Bible's authenticity and its historicity and all this stuff. And then the guy who's—because he's assuming he already knows what he needs to say. The guy who's playing the non-Christian knows he doesn't know already what he needs to say so he's actually gone to the atheist websites mm. and found out where the state of the thing is now and so he'll come back and say well who cares the bible's an immoral book who cares if it's historically accurate who cares i mean if it's inspired in the internet that just makes it worse yeah. because it's an immoral book and people who follow it are immoral people 
because it supports racism and genocide and the oppression of women and homophobia and xenophobia. I mean, that's what the Bible's all about. It's the source of all the evil in the universe. Yeah. And the guy, the guy would be floored. You, he'd get that deer in the headlights look. Yeah. And I would say, okay. Yeah. We are well prepared. The guys who are apologetics nerds and who want to take that course, they are well prepared to deal with the questions of one generation ago. I had to make adjustments as I was teaching that to make sure some of these things got covered. Irrelevant, yeah. So I realized this is this is kind of where we are as a movement. So they answering the questions of a, of, of a generation ago. They still need to be answered. We have to be prepared to defend the traditional questions. But the second half, I'd cover 19 different questions that young Christians might get asked by their peers. And how do we respond to those? The second half of it deals with the new stuff, the stuff you're going to get if you walk onto a secular campus today. Nobody cares about whether the Bible's historical or not. The Bible's an immoral book. We have to be prepared for that, too. Okay. So the format. That's one thing this book does. Yeah. Other other apologetics books haven't maybe focused on quite so much. Yeah. Well, and I agree with you. These are the roadblocks that I'm I'm seeing in uh, my kids' generation and the generation Mm -hmm. coming. So yeah, you mentioned you you came up with eighteen or nineteen particular topics to to defend or to uh, when they when they're uh, given by an unbeliever to you, uh, and these are obstacles in their way of you know that, that that's keeping them from believing uh we're, we're gonna go through i'm just gonna we're not gonna go through all 19 i kind of picked out and you could probably summarize some of them because the first five chapters really have to do with the bible so how would you rather than me reading each question uh sum up for us what uh we can do and say to address the the major questions that are being asked by this generation about the bible People need to understand the Bible's uh, historical accuracy, whether that's their question or not, because Mm. we're presenting a Christ who died on the cross and was raised from the dead in history. Yeah. And if that didn't actually happen in history, and if we don't have reliable information about it, then we got nothing. We're just another religion which is just leading people down the primrose path. As Paul said, we we would be of all men most miserable. So we have to raise those questions, even if people don't care about them because they're essential. Yeah. And uh, when you look at the Bible without a previous bias against the supernatural, then it amazingly uh, answers the bell in terms of, of what are the criteria uh, in the chapter on the historical evidence for the resurrection? You know, I look at five things that, that historians and lawyers look at when they're evaluating testimony. Do you have multiple witnesses? Well, do you have actual witnesses who are eyewitnesses? Mm-hmm. Do you have multiple witnesses? If you have multiple witnesses, does their testimony have the right kind of consistency? So you don't want all four witnesses, if we think about the four Gospels, you don't want them to be identical, because then you think they got together and fixed the story before they gave it to us. 
you know, if, if your witnesses in a court of law are saying exactly the same thing, this does not enhance their credibility. It undermines it. Mm -hmm. What you want are, is testimony that has discrepancies, but not contradictions. Mm -hmm. Discrepancies, okay. Is it one angel or two angels? Well, if, if there was two, there was one. By the way, you the question that you raise, and keep going with that, but it's a great uh -huh. question, Chapter 4. Why can't the people who wrote the four Gospels get their story straight? That That's what you're talking about now, so right. keep going yeah, with that's it. That's relevant there, too. Mm -hmm. So the right kind of consistency, you want discrepancies but not contradictions. If one says there was two angels and the other one says there was only one angel, you got a contradiction. Only one of them, at most, can be right. Therefore, you don't really have witnesses supporting each other. Mm. Uh, if both of them say exactly the same thing, that's okay, but it's not great when you're evaluating witnesses. What you want is people that are telling the story differently from their own perspective, what they saw in a way that fits together and corroborates each other, and it needs to have a few discrepancies, but not contradictions, mm -hmm. exactly what we have in the Gospels. Uh, you want hostile witnesses, okay? If if my best friend gives me an alibi, well, that's, that's good testimony. But if my worst enemy gives me an alibi, that's even more impressive testimony yeah. because he has no motivation for right. bending the story in my favor. Well, New Testament writers, uh, one of the things people often argue is, well, they're all Christians. Of course they say that. Yeah. Yeah. But Paul hated Christianity more than anybody else on the planet. It was a professional persecutor of the church. And all of a sudden, he turns out to be their most zealous spokesman. How do you account for that? Yeah. James, the brother of Jesus, was not a believer during Jesus' earthly ministry. After the resurrection, James shows up as a leader in the early church. So you have people who used to be hostile witnesses, but were won over. By what? You have to ask that question. If you apply the criteria to the Gospels that lawyers apply evaluating testimony in court, that historians apply evaluating historical documentary testimony, it checks every box. Mm -hmm. uh, you want embarrassing testimony. Uh, if you give me an alibi, but in the process of giving me that alibi, you have to admit that you were in a very embarrassing situation to see it. People are going to think that's really good testimony because uh, if you change the story, you're going to change the story to your own advantage. Right. right. If you say something embarrassing, you wouldn't do that unless it was true. Well, you have the disciples come across as clueless cowards until after Pentecost. Uh, you have women are the first witnesses. Mm -hmm. Well, in first century Jewish culture, women weren't considered to be reliable witnesses. They weren't allowed to testify in court. The Bible isn't supporting that. The Bible's just dealing with the fact. That's the way it was. Yeah, just telling the if story. Put, yeah. If you put women as your first primary witnesses to the resurrection, there's no way you're making this story up. There's no way you're cooking the data because you would, if you were doing that, you would do it in ways that would enhance your credibility with yeah. that original audience. Yeah. yeah. Don, I'm going I'm to have to jump in here because there's so much to cover. I'd, I'd like to, because again, there's a whole section here about dealing 
with with the Bible, the uh, you know four hundred thousand variants of of manuscripts, and uh, even talking about evolution and uh, relativism. You know, just because the Bible is true for you, why does it make it true for me? I mean, that's a common thing today. But let let's uh, let's jump into some of those specific things that we will hear. Uh, and I think every generation has has been asking these questions, but things like, you know, the Bible talks about genocide, racism, slavery, homophobia, oppression and abuse of women. Uh, give us a response on how you answered or addressed those questions in, in this book. Because I thought they were, I thought it was fascinating. I was riveted by by how you attacked each of these. Does the Bible support genocide? No, the Bible commands genocide on one unique occasion. What people who get exercised about that don't do is they don't look at the general teaching. The general ethical principles that are laid down throughout the Old Testament is limited warfare. You're not allowed to attack non-combatants. You're not even allowed to cut down their fruit trees when you're besieging the city. You must offer them terms of peace. And, and spare the civilians if you're attacking their Limited warfare in an enlightened way that is absolutely sticking out like a sore thumb in the ancient Near East. In fact, that's the basic teaching of the Old Testament, is not only does it not support genocide, it forbids it. Mm -hmm. Why then, on this one occasion, do we have an exception? And that would, of course, be the invasion of Canaan. So the first thing you have to do is look at the total picture and not just grab this one thing that sounds really uh, scandalous if you take it out of context. When you look at the uh, Canaanite genocide, where they were actually, in several cases, commanded to kill everything that breathes when they captured a city, it was put off for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. This was God's judgment on a particular people at a particular time. And so we have to ask the question, can we imagine a scenario in which it would be justified for God to wipe a culture out, take it right down to bare stone and start over? Mm. And I think we've been given a very interesting uh, object lesson on that. Uh, in our own time, if you remember back when ISIS was the big thing in the news, yeah, can you remember that video that showed the they were torturing people to death for not being Muslims and torturing them to death, and the children were having a big party and celebrating this, and their mothers were egging them on. Now, I'm not saying that just that genocide against ISIS is justified. I'm not saying that we should do that. We don't have the authority to make that call. What I'm saying is, when you watch that video, it enables you to imagine a scenario in which God might say, mm. this thing has become so corrupt, there's nothing we can do with it, but take it down to the bare rock and leave nothing behind. God made that call a couple of times. One was uh, three times, actually. One was uh, the flood, wiped out everybody except Noah's family. One was Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody except Lot's family. And then 
the Canaanite situation. The uh, one thing that makes the Canaanite uh, genocide difficult is that uh, human beings were the instrument. That or, makes that one a little harder. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. But uh, it's simply not accurate to say that the Bible supports genocide. The Bible forbids genocide, but there, the Bible is realistic in dealing with human evil. Yeah. And there was that one. There were those three situations. That happened. Yeah. Okay. There were yeah. those three situations where, uh, like it or not, it was justified. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so, so we with social, you know, the popularity of social justice and the the conversations about it. You talk about racism, slavery, homophobia. How do you address uh, each each of those in the book? Racism. Uh, it's easy to get the impression that the Bible is racist because you have the chosen people, the mm -hmm. Jews, like who think they're better than everybody else because they're chosen. But of course, the Bible doesn't. Uh, support or encourage that attitude that condemns it mm -hmm. very, very consistently. Uh, it goes out of its way to make the point, you were not chosen because you were better than any other nation. Your choosing is a pure statement of God's grace, his unmerited favor, and you were chosen for the sake of all the other families on the face of the earth. The Abrahamic covenant is, through you I'm going to bless every family on the earth. Well, the Jews, being sinful human beings, naturally forgot that part and focused on their privilege. Uh, but the message of the Bible is that that is where they absolutely went wrong. And uh, great, even in the Old Testament, with uh, the prophets, with Jonah in particular, Jonah doesn't want to go preach to Nineveh because of his racist attitudes. That's not exactly uh, affirmed. Yeah, that is condemned. And when you get to the New Testament, one of the major thrusts of the New Testament is to have us understand that uh, the gospel is for all people, and that you can't make distinctions on that basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, people read the Bible very selectively. Well, we've been doing that for a long time. But you know, if you want to get out of having to obey it then it's to your advantage to find these scandalous things in it, which you can do if you read it very, very selectively. What I make a start in this book, because these are short chapters, <coughs> so they just make a start in giving you the opportunity to see the big picture, to see those, those things in their actual context and understand the message that's coming across is very different from the impression that you're given by these skeptics who want to use those as as ways of attacking them. Yeah. Bible. How about homophobia? How do you how do you address that? The Bible presents a sexual ethic in which marriage intended to be between a man and a woman, and it's the foundation of the family. And uh, sexual expression outside of that is forbidden. Period. That would include homosexual homosexuality. But homosexuality is not treated as being different from any other sin. Mm -hmm. In other words, nothing in Scripture gives me any encouragement to say that I ought to uh, think less of a person because he has a different set of temptations than I have. Right, right. And it's, there's and, grace, grace expected in in every on every front. So, so uh, homosexuals are not treated differently from any other sinner. They're given the opportunity to repent. 
and they're given the offer of forgiveness and complete acceptance if they do. So the idea, you know, hey, modern people don't like the biblical sexual ethic. They want to be able to do whatever they feel like yeah, doing when yeah, they feel like yeah. doing it. So, I mean, you just have to deal with that. It's the only path that leads to human thriving. Mm -hmm. Every deviation from that path, and many, many, many studies have shown this, uh, leads to terrible, terrible consequences for families, for children, for individuals. Mm -hmm. But people aren't going to like that. We have to just deal with it and be prepared to defend it because it is the only real path to human thriving. But the idea that the Bible treats homosexuals as worse than any other sinners is just simply not there to be found. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, I, I am just as guilty. I've never actually committed fornication or adultery, but uh, I certainly, like every other man who's not lying, uh, have been tempted to mm -hmm. do it and done it in my heart. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I am in no way superior yeah. Yeah. We're equally sinners, equally before the throne of God's grace, equally in need of God's grace. And uh, so the, yeah. the scripture will not let us mistreat people because they have a different set of temptations yeah. that we do. But that doesn't mean that we can redefine what sin is. Yeah. Yeah. You talk to, uh, we'll wrap up with this, uh, again, just some of the, the big obstacles, uh, you know, eternal punishments, uh, infinite punishment, the reality of hell, uh, people who've never heard the gospel before. Uh, I think those, those sections in the book are all kind of tied together. Uh, how, how do you wrap up a, an explanation there? Sorry to sorry to rush you. We're covering a lot in a short period of time, but hopefully enough sure. it encourages people to buy. Hopefully, the book. hopefully will motivate people to actually. That's exactly yeah. We're just giving teasers here, nineteen teasers. <laughs> um, yeah, um, people who haven't heard the gospel are sinners who need to be saved, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a strong movement among younger evangelicals today to want to believe in what's called inclusivism, which is the doctrine that, that they can be saved even if they haven't heard of Jesus by, uh, by responding to the light that they have. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we need to do is focus not on salvation, which is God's business, but on the assurance of salvation. Mm-hmm. On what basis can I give you or any other human being the assurance of salvation? Well, there's only one. It's confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. That is the only promise of salvation that we've been given. That's the only promise that I have been authorized to make on God's behalf. So I must be very careful not to imply that there is a promise of salvation on any other basis. There isn't. Okay. When Paul is dealing with this in Romans, he gets up to chapter, you know, 9, 10 and following, and you're uh, saying, well, uh, what about people? The only one time that people who have never heard have been, is addressed in Scripture, Paul's conclusion is, how, how will they hear without a preacher? Yeah. yeah. We better go tell them. 
Okay. It's it's not, well, it's okay. They might make it in anyway. It's we really need to go tell them. And and I think we need to uh stay at that point without necessarily putting God in a box. God will do what's right. You know, you, you hear the stories about the missionary goes to a tribe, first missionary there. He preaches the gospel, and they say, oh, wow, we knew something like this had to be true. Yeah. Thanks for telling us what his name is. Yeah. But what about the guy who died the day before the missionary showed up? Mm -hmm. Is that guy going to hell? I don't know. I hope he's not. But I can't promise you. There's no promise of salvation to be given on any other basis than explicit faith in Christ yeah. as Lord and Savior. Yeah, you, you deal beautifully with that in, in the book. Um, on, on the issue, I'm going to read a, a statement you make on page 132 about eternal punishment. Uh, mm -hmm. So no justice of hell is not the real problem. The real mystery, the thing that we can't accept but never finally explain is the grace of heaven. That's some of the good. some of us are <coughs> constitutional rebels, the ones who are enabled to accept it will be forgiven and changed and granted to see his face, uh, him face to face. Uh, <coughs> want to be one of those. I, I love that how you appeal to you know we we struggle with the reality of hell. We should also be struggling with the reality of grace. Like how how in the world. Has God been so good and kind to allow me, a sinner, to, to be in heaven? Amen. Amen. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, you wrote it. <laughs> uh, how do you end the book? I, I love how you end it. Do you remember how you end it? Yeah, I, I end it with, uh, a, with the uh, index. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to read what you wrote. <laughs> no, you, you, biography. You, you end with Jesus. You end with yeah. Jesus. You know, the focus of all this is so people uh, <laughs> will be overwhelmed by that offer of faith. Uh, we're to stay focused on him, and you can have the same faith that sustained him beneath his crown. <laughs> so any, uh, any final words here? Well, that's one of the emphases I had in my apologetics course uh, when I had the privilege of teaching it, is that it's not about winning arguments. It's about uh, removing obstacles to yeah. people loving Jesus. Yeah, I love that. Leave people at the feet of Jesus, and we need to... Um, we need to plan our apologetics... Uh, presentations and arguments and statements and our witnessing uh so we have the opportunity to do so that. to i love that uh, yeah because i think sometimes we get into this to uh you know uh, answer the arguments and if we're if we're passionately in love with christ we want others to know that and when we identify you know, the obstacles that are there in their lives. We, we want to address it, remove those out of the way so we can say, right. hey, here, see, this is Jesus. This is, this is what it's all about. It's what he did for us on the cross and that you too can have the, the, the beauty and the joy of, of knowing him and having uh, eternal life with him. Very last paragraph states what I want people to get out of this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go for Believe it. Believe in Jesus with new confidence. Share him with new boldness and intelligence and sensitivity, and may God 
receive the glory. Yeah. Amen. 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 Well, Don, thank you so much. I, I will uh, put the book, a link to the book on the face, uh, on the oh, website. You. And you did a great job, man. This was like uh, drinking from a fire hose, as they say. And uh, I, I think we did pretty well covering the main gist of it. So, so thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for allowing these latter years of your life to be as much about the investment in the kingdom and uh, passion for Christ and passion for the lost. And uh, may the Lord continue to bless you as you do that. Yeah. You can't retire from being a Christian or being a witness Absolutely. from yeah. living for the glory to, yeah. to for the glory of God. That's what I'm finding too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Don. Amen. Amen. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Before You Quit podcast. If you have any comments or questions, and I'd love to hear from you about anything we've talked about today or on any other episodes, any thoughts you might have, any suggestions for other podcasts, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. So until next time, stay encouraged, be courageous, because serving Jesus is worth all of that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged.